This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, the Bears' second course edition. It's Wednesday, June 28th, 2023. On today's show, the already widely beloved TV show, The Bear, returns on Hulu. Don't uh, We don't typically do second seasons on our podcast. We felt this one was special enough maybe or the buzz around it was uh, notable enough to cover it so we did and then something else has returned as well j-law jennifer lawrence takes her stardom in a new direction with her summer sex comedy no hard feelings about a woman who's hired by wealthy helicopter parents to date their son it co-stars andrew barth feldman as her mark and finally in which steve learns what john means but actually doesn't because you Google it and it's like, yeah, it's kind of a what's it word. And then you have to Google what's it and you're in this like weird linguistic hall of mirrors. Much more to the point, we're discussing an incredibly fun I blog. I feel like I'm a hundred years old doing <laughs> what the fuck is I guess sub- we call sub- it Substack stack. newsletter. <laughs> Uh, we have a friend of the program that we see way too little of and haven't seen in, in a long time, Jonah Weiner, and unfortunately can't join us for this segment. He says hi to our listeners, but he wrote something so fun on his substack about the online clothing emporium Essence, I guess is how it's pronounced. It's spelled S-S-E-N-S-E, all one word. Uh, I can't wait to have it explained to me, but what I read was just ap- absolutely captivating. Uh, anyway, joining me today is uh, Julia Turner of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. And of course, Dana Stevens, the uh, film critic for Slate. Hey, Dana. Hey, good to be back with both of you. It's been too long. I'm a yeah. big fan of yours, but I'm a much bigger fan of your Godzilla shirt. I don't feel like I've seen it in a long time. <laughs> really? This is one of my standards. <laughs> yeah, okay. I just haven't noticed it in a long It's really cool. That's a great shirt. All right, shall we? Let's do it. All right. Well, The Bear is the, as we said, already uh, highly lauded TV show. It's from FX and Hulu about a family business being taken over by a second son after the first son has killed himself. The show dropped you verite style uh, into the utter chaos of running a restaurant. It was beloved justly, I think, for its humor, pathos, and above all, its extraordinary ensemble cast. Season two returns uh, to Hulu. The consensus may be that it's an even better show. We'll discuss. Uh, this version does uh, t- uh, two things, broadly speaking. I'd say it gives us a classic kind of three-act style MacGuffin. Will they reopen the restaurant in time to pay back an onerous loan, or will they lose the joint? Uh, and it also, uh, at the 
same time opens up and really deepens, it, it, taking us deep into the family past, the origins of the show as a kind of grief memoir, as well as going far-flung in all these interesting ways. It goes as far away as Copenhagen into the most esoteric and rarefied foodie temple of them all. It takes us to Noma. Uh, it's really quite something. And the clip we're about to hear, it's uh, the first episode of season two. We're instantly dropped back into the chaos, right? And Medias Race, where the restaurant workers are trying to figure out how many things are going to need to be fixed, renovated, etc., so they can reopen the place on time. Let's, uh, let's have a listen. How's my budget looking? Great. Not good. Shitty. All right. Fuck this. Watch the bear, all right? We have equipment that works. That's a great start, everybody. Zero. Then we have a deep clean, very deep clean and drywall insulation. The fridge is still fucked in the ass. Linen. Fryer is fucked. The fryer is fucked. That's 5K right there. Fryer. Shit fryer. And then another 10 for the correct fryer. And the oven is scary. That's another 10. Okay, good. All right, so we got 20. 30. 30. The oven. Fuck me. Then we got the windows, the demo, the brick, that's 50K, plus 20K, that is 70K, that's not bad. Really? Fuck me, cousin! (laughs) We're back, right? (laughs) It wouldn't be a bear sound clip without the word cousin being shouted at least four times. (laughs) Exactly right. Should we all just start referring to each other as cousin? (laughs) It would be be too much of a put-on, but it's tempting. Julia, let me start with you. You know, shows... Uh, for understandable reasons, often face season two problems. They, you know, you pour a lot into season one because you really got to go for it to get it picked up and even get a season two. You might not be ready to produce something as strong. They, uh, bar was set really high here. Uh, consensus is they cleared it by a country mile. Uh, what did you think? There are a few things I love about this second season so far. And I say so far because I've watched some of it, but not all of it. Um, I really think that this show is an ensemble show in the best, deepest sense. Like, I feel like if I were running an ensemble show, this show would have me running scared about how deeply and well I am serving all of the facets of my ensemble. And I'm really impressed with the risk it takes to kind of shift focus. You know, they still give are giving plenty of storylines to our, you know, the beloved folks who were the main drivers of the plot in season one, but um, we get to spend time with a few of the line cooks who are, who are you know, going to the Culinary Institute to sharpen their skills in advance of this opening. Um, they're mixing up the flavors on the show with a lot of confidence, and I think it really works. Hmm. Dana, what about, what about you? I mean, first of all, I'm just excited the bear is back. <laughs> it's it's in a moment like Succession just ended, Better Call Saul is over. I want my show, and and it was so it's just <laughs> nice to welcome this show back. Which whatever its flaws may be, and I do want to talk about. I want to push back a, a little bit against the idea that this is like you know absolutely masterfully realized television. I yeah. think that what what makes this show stand out is that it. It has its own voice, and it's, as Julia said, a wonderful ensemble piece full of you just are excited to spend time with these characters and watch them interact. I do think that that this show, I suppose that its defenders could say this is what is lovable about it, but there there are some real 
tonal shifts in between episode to episode, right? Which is part of the pleasure of the show is that you never quite know what's coming. And there's also quite a few tonal shifts between the two seasons, right? So the, the standard kind of tonality for the bear is something like what we heard in that clip, which is like a lot of overlapping dialogue, shouting, right? People kind of um, having it out, right, in, in front of each other and in front of the camera. And in some interesting ways, the second season veers away from that in some episodes and then veers very hard back into it in others. And sometimes that seems to me that that lack of tonal control seems like the show could use some tightening, even though it's just half hour episodes. Right. Um, but then there's some wonderful moments in those tonal shifts, like, for example, the the Copenhagen episode that you mentioned, Steve. Yeah. I think it's the third or fourth episode of, fourth. of season two that takes the bear into this odd new contemplative place with one of my favorite characters from the first season who we don't get that much solo time with, Marcus, the pastry chef, uh, who is, unlike most characters in the bear, pretty introspective and quiet. And, uh, and he gets sent to Copenhagen to do a stage, as they call it, a kind of internship, a brief internship at Noma, a restaurant we've discussed on this show in its own segment, right? This legendary Copenhagen temple of haute cuisine. And that episode to me was so, um, it was just beautiful because it was all about travel, right? Mm -hmm. And about him sort of expanding his horizons. It was less about food even and what he was learning in the restaurant, although Will Poulter does a great guest turn as a, as a chef, than it was about just discovering a different part of yourself and a different part of life. Okay, just like holistically, I loved it. I thought they did clear it by a country mile, even though it had been hyped to the skies before I started watching season two. I think they nailed it, and what? But but they nailed it in a specific way, which is really going for it is going to include some misses and some hits. And I agree with you that that tonal shift is is where maybe it's not like seamlessly perfect, but its ambitions got so much bigger, and you know. The restaurant itself, the kind of very MacGuffin, which I think they need spinally for the for it all to cohere. It's like, are we going to open it by X date because the Oliver Platt character, the the rich shady uncle, has loaned the money and calling in? The, I mean, if they don't make the opening, he gets the restaurant. Right? It's like sort of, it's very MacGuffiny, and um, I felt as though they were fan servicing in those parts of the show, like Cuz and, you know, um, the Ibram Moss character. And like, it was all a little broad and like, we're still here. We're still doing the thing that you loved. And everything else had this tonal beauty and patience to it that was uh, played against that and was quite beautiful. I mean, for example, one of the first moments where I was totally captivated was Sid, who we all kind of understood when we did this show early in its run, would develop into a major character and has. She's essentially now the partner of Carmi. And, you know, a young aspiring woman whose father, there's an extraordinary scene with her father. I've been Googling, trying to find out what that actor's name Robert is. Robert Townsend. He's, that's Robert Townsend. Oh, I knew I recognized him. He's so, He's so good. good in that part. He's so real. You're like, I think that's a real father. I read about restaurants in the papers. Oh, my God. They're hard. The and a lot of them. Yeah, a lot of them don't work out. Yes, I'm, we've I'm, actually I'm had this conversation they, I'm saying they, they don't. That doesn't mean that, that 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 you you won't. So then, what does it mean? Why are you bringing it up? <sighs> anyway, it's just this cognitive dissonance. It's one of those performances that's so authentic. You can't believe those lines were ever written down on a page. And um, but there's a scene where Carmi stands her up, and at exactly the moment where her father, after her father has counseled her, maybe not to trust him, and he sort of stands her up, but he says, "Go and." 
go and just clean your palate and try other things. Like get out in the city of Chicago. And it's just, it's not only a tone poem love letter to the city of Chicago, which is itself beautifully wrought. It's the same to the food scene of Chicago, you know, and it's, there are real cameos of, of Chicago real restaurants and the real people who run them talking to a young aspirant. I mean, her character, but they're real talking to as if to a real young aspirant about the martyrdom really of being a, the business owner and, and chef or whatever of, of a new place. And it's like you pour all of your heart and soul into something that may very, very, very well fail or break you. And those stakes seemed really very real to me, more than the MacGuffin so far. Yeah, so I had an interesting watching experience because I crammed the bear all weekend because I was out when you guys talked about it last season, so I had never gotten around to watching it. And had a couple responses to it in relation to the cultural conversation around it that I will share. One is... I feel like the line on the show was like, it's so intense. It's so stressful. Don't watch it before bed. They're always shouting. And I was expecting something much darker. But this is like Abbott Elementary with knives. Like this is incredibly (laughs) sweet and cozy. Like the fundamental heart of this show is extremely human, nurturing, wise. Like it's not about the bad men of the kitchen and their brutalizing badness. It's about people trying to be good and do good, which I love. I love that kind of show. It's my favorite kind of show. I also think, I mean, you said, Dana, you wanted to engage the question of whether this is like one of the glories of TV um, or, or how much of a exquisite masterpiece versus just a fun show it is. And I think the thing that impresses me about it is the, um, kind of confidence and subtlety of the writing and the fact that that cozy bozy, I mean, it's actually similar to Abbott Elementary in this way too, that it is using a lot of kind of warm human interactions and travails to look at power structures and how humans operate within them. And it seems like season one is very focused on men and their feelings and how come they're so bad at them and what happens to everyone around them because they are so bad at them. And season two seems a little bit more focused on evolving that out, like not just staying locked in the men and their feelings and what do they feel this season and what do they feel that season and what do they feel when they kill that guy and what do they feel when they lose the Chevy account? Like, you know, if you think of Breaking Bad and Mad Men as also shows that we're interested in various bad versions of masculinity. This is a show that that kind of aerates that inquiry in a really lovely way by not being only curious about the man, which is that's not fair. Of course, those shows were curious about Skylar and Peggy and Hank. And uh, so I don't need to throw those shows under any buses to praise this show. But there is something refreshing about the lightness of touch with which it does that, and and maybe it's just this half-hour format, which is, you know, f- fundamentally a comedic length in TV. Um, but I just was I was like bracing myself for grim and dark, and then was like, this is like a freaking fairy forest full of mushrooms and twinkles. <laughs> I don't know about that, Jada. Fairy forest twinkles. I mean, in in so much as it's not 
exploring questions of evil, you know, in the way that a show like Breaking Bad is, right? Oh, sure. I mean, I think I see what Julie's talking about. The kitchen is toxic in the first season, but it's not bad, gropey man toxic, right? It has more to do with Carmi's anger issues, the main character. I think, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm with Julia. This show is, is, that's sort of what I mean about, like, let's not get too solemn about, you know, how great the bear is. It's fun. It's different than anything else that's on. I'm very glad it's back. I encourage people to watch it for all kinds of reasons. But yeah, I don't feel the need to, to, to place it on any pantheon. And I wanted to just mention, I feel like we can't talk about season two without at least mentioning episode six, which is by far the longest. It's over an hour as opposed to the roughly half hour that all the other episodes have been in both seasons. And it's a flashback. And this was actually, I think when we talked about S1 of The Bear, one of my critiques was, okay, I understand that this show doesn't do flashbacks, but I need to know a little bit more about the family. Like, here's the Bearzados, this crazy chaotic family that's been managing a Chicago beefland restaurant for generations. Can we please know something about their parents, their home, where they come from? They never talk about them, right? They talk about the brother, Mikey, played in, in flashback by John Bernthal, who commits suicide before the show ever starts. But they never talk about, like, the actual home life they come from. So season six places us back in that home life, flashes us back five years. And I won't give anything away except to say Jamie Lee Curtis plays their mom. Mm -hmm. And it's an extremely intense performance, an extremely intense episode. I get why people are flipping out for this episode. But I also the critic in me wants to say that episode is really over-directed. And Christopher Storer, who we haven't mentioned, who's the creator, mm-hmm. co-writer, he directed that episode and plenty of others, um, I feel like is, is laying it on a bit thick in that episode. And I can point to specific shots where that is happening if anybody wants to have a down-and-dirty tutorial about about season two, episode six. But, yeah, there's a little, there's some moments in that sixth episode where I feel like the show is glorying a bit too much and it's, mm-hmm. you know, frenetic pacing and ability to make us all feel on edge. And it doesn't quite really create a believable full background for the family, which, mm-hmm. you know, I, I could take this down some other routes, too. I really don't understand the finances of mm-hmm. the bear, the restaurant. I really don't get how they simultaneously cannot afford a fryer, but can send somebody to Copenhagen for a stage at a fancy restaurant. Or right? in the first season when they figure out that they don't have to make bread and they can just buy it like the thing you do when you figure that out. Is not like say great. Let's keep the bread guy and build a pastry line. <laughs> yeah, no, very good point. Um, well, season two of the Bear is uh, available in its entirety on Hulu. We more or less totally loved it. Check it out. Let us know what you thought, and let's move on. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's three percent on all your favorite products at Apple. on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. All right, now is the moment in our podcast uh, where we discuss business. Dana, what, uh, what do you have? 
Steve, we have two items of business this week. First of all, the reminder that our annual Summer Strut episode is coming up, the episode where, as longtime listeners know, we compile a massive Spotify playlist of summer jams from our listeners, listen to them ourselves, make our sub lists, and then invite Chris Melanfi, Slate's beloved pop critic, on to talk about songs of the summer and songs for all summers with us. That's going to be coming up later this summer. So if you have ideas for the list, please email us at culturefestatslate.com. Put something about Summer Strut in the subject line so we know what it's about and we'll add it to the list. You only have, though, listeners, a few more days to do this because we have to put a cap on this at some point or the list is too long to listen to in a single summer. So please, by July 1st, which is this coming Saturday, send us your links if you've got them. Our second item of business is just to tell you about today's Slate Plus segment. If you're a Slate Plus member, you'll hear us talk at the end of the show about a recent piece by A.O. Scott in the New York Times. If you listen to our show, you probably know who A.O. Scott is, but he is the former film critic for The Times. After about 20 years covering movies for them, he switched recently to writing about books. And the piece we're going to talk about today is especially about books. It's called Everyone Likes Reading. Why Are We So Afraid of It? He talks about what he identifies as a reading crisis in American culture right now. We're going to talk about that article and offer our own thoughts on the state of reading for today's Slate Plus segment. If you belong to Slate Plus, you'll hear that at the end of this show. And if you don't, you can sign up at slate.com slash culture plus. When you sign up for Slate Plus, you get ad-free podcasts. You get bonus content like that segment I just described, which lots of other podcasts have as well. And you get unlimited access to all of the writing on slate.com. These memberships are what keeps Slate afloat. So please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. And that's it for business, Steve. What's next? All right. Well, she is a 32-year-old Maddie Barker. She's played by J-Law, Jennifer Lawrence. Uh, she's a Montauk townie, works the summer season as an Uber driver. The movie begins with her car being repoed. And her house is close uh, to that, too. It's inherited from her mother, and it's about to be taken away by the tax authorities. To get out of her financial pickle, she takes on the strangest of gigs. She agrees to date We'll talk about what that means, a shy, room-bound 19-year-old rich kid in an attempt to bring him out of his shell before heading off to Princeton in the fall. This was a plan hatched by his uh, parents, who are well-intentioned uber-rich monsters. What follows is a wild sex comedy in which J-Law gets to show off her screwball chops. It's directed and co-written by Gene Stupnitsky, who gave us the show Jury Duty, funnily enough. Uh, in the clip we're about to hear, the two main characters are on their first date, they're out at a bar, uh, even though Percy, the young man, is underage, and here they're ordering their drinks. What do you want, Maddie? Uh, a Long Island iced tea for me, and... Pepsi, please. We only have Coke. Oh. Do you want to go somewhere else? Um, no, Percy, he'll have a Long Island iced tea, too. Okay. Am I allowed to be here? Oh, yeah, I know the owner, it's fine. It's just that I'm not 21. That doesn't matter here. Well, I think it's a, a federal law. <laughs> I just hope my parents don't find out that I'm here. Hey, Long Island I see for America's sweetheart and one for the boy. Uh, this is the worst iced tea I've ever had. All right, uh, Dana, let me start with you. Um... What this is a big, relatively hyped return for Jennifer Lawrence. What would you make of this vehicle for her? I mean, I have a feeling that I, I'm afraid that this is going to be one of those things where I go out on a limb and then both of you just scoff me into eternity. But I love this movie. It basically gets an A plus for me. 
<laughs> it gets an A plus for exactly what it is, which, as you hyped it up top, is a, a, a raunchy summer sex comedy. It just felt so analog to me seeing this movie. Maybe it was related to to the experience of seeing it. Like I went to a a small local movie theater in Brooklyn that I'd never been to before because it's outside my neighborhood. I took a bus there. And it just felt like and I didn't get on my phone. I just like sat and looked out the window of the bus. And I felt like I was in 1990 the entire time, (laughs) including the 103 minutes that the movie took, even though it takes place in the present day. This is not a nostalgic period piece or anything like that. But it's the kind of movie that doesn't exist anymore. And I want more movies like this to rain down from heaven every summer. It reminded me of going to see... I mean, Fast Times at Ridgemont High or Valley Girl or something like that back in the 80s. But there have been later iterations of this type of movie as well, right? And I was thinking of Easy A, the Emma Stone movie that was Mm. sort of her breakthrough. I mean, a movie that's about young people making bad mistakes because of horniness, right? And money and all of the reasons that people make bad decisions in this kind of movie. And above all, just Jennifer Lawrence doing sex comedy. I mean, from the first minute she appears getting her car repoed by... Evan Moss yes. Backrock in the way by the way Richie <laughs> yeah. from from the this bear. is the, just the Evan Moss Backrock episode <laughs> he's everywhere lately he really is he, everywhere as he should be yeah um, but from the very first scene where where she's you know raging at him for taking away her car I just thought of course Jennifer Lawrence belongs in movies like this you know why has she been doing not that she's not right for those as well but you know these kind of big action tent poles mm-hmm. that she has been doing for the you know since the Hunger Games years she but she sub specializes right in this particular type which is actually the type in a way a variation on the type she played in Winter's Bone, her breakthrough indie way back when she was, I believe, a teenager, which is like a tough working class girl, right, who's going to get what she wants by any means necessary. That would describe, I think, her her character Maddie in this movie. And she's just so fun to watch and believable as that, you know, as the kind of hot girl who uses her hotness in a somewhat cynical and manipulative way. But there's also a sweetness underneath. I want to shout out the Rolling Stone review of this movie, which we read in our our prep doc for this week. It's by David Fear, who's a great critic and also a good friend of mine. But he is so wrong in everything he says about this movie. Don't listen to David Fear's review in Rolling Stone. (laughs) It's the exact opposite that's true of the movie. He kept saying, like, this is cynical drivel that's just turned out for the market. Like, no, it's not. There's no market for this. First of all, it's not turned out for any known market. Right. But also, to me, this movie had such a sweet gentle core and it sounds of course he's 19 she's 32 pretending to be a little bit younger so the parents will hire him her to date in quotes right like have sex with her son and it's could so easily lend itself to being this kind of queasy mm-hmm. age gap romance yeah. but it has none of that in it i mean for one thing the movie itself problematizes you know like what is the power dynamic between them and it keeps on changing and shifting as they kind of get closer and then get further apart but I don't know. I just I completely believed their relationship, even when it had absurd action scenes and, you know, nude beach fights and all kinds of stuff that like (laughs) that pushed it into a different kind of raunchy comedy territory. It kind of kept the heart. And also, I just have to say that Andrew Barth Feldman, who I saw in a teen production with my then, I think, 12 year old daughter or something playing Toad in Wind in the Willows, probably like (laughs) seven years ago. He then ended up winning a Jimmy, which is sort of like the high school musical equivalent of the Oscar for Best Actor. 
actor and then playing Dear Evan Hansen on Broadway. He replaced Ben Platt in that role. So I've kind of known about Andrew Barth Feldman being out there doing neat theater things for a while. But this is the first movie I've seen him in. And he's fantastic. And he gets to sing. There's a beautiful, beautiful scene where he sings. It's really him singing. He arranged the song. It feels so handcrafted, this movie. I I loved it. I I, I know. And Julia, before I pivot to you, I just have to say, Dana, this is uncanny in my notes, and I think it was the it was the first thing I was going to say. I felt like I'm in a multiplex in East Orange, Connecticut, in 1992, <laughs> oh watching this movie. We had the same yeah. same thing. All right, Julia, go. Uh, also loved this movie. Yay! Oh man! Yeah. I mean, I will like. I have some. It's an interesting thing to watch, and I get why maybe some critics it didn't gel for them. I felt like for the first half hour, I was thinking, oh, God, this is not going to work at all. And there's some set pieces that are supposed to be funny that don't that seem labored or seem that don't, didn't land for me. And then it just settles into this pair of performances that are very specific. Like she's a very precise person. And she's messed up and he's a very precise person and he's messed up. And in a funny way, he's the grown up in the relationship. He's much more centered and grounded than you'd think. And it just kind of works. Right. So it's a little tonally wobbly where you, you have to get comfortable with like what even is an adult comedy and what is her personality? Like her personality seems off-putting and insane for the beginning of the movie and you're sort of like who am I rooting for here what what is my angle in um and then and then it kind of settles into itself and into a confidence about its own unique tone and then I just laughed really hard a lot in a row in a theater with other people which just isn't you know, something that I'm used to because that doesn't seem like what the theater is trying to make me do. It's more like wanting me to chortle at a wisecrack before things blow up and like actually just cracking my shit up. (laughs) It was really Mm -hmm. fun. I loved being in that multiplex in East Orange in 1992 and it's hot AF out and the air conditioner is pumping and over the course of 90 minutes you get told an entire story and, you know, you fall in love with the star, right? She's an old-fashioned movie star. Like, I don't, you know, they're out there. I get it. And their acting, film acting and TV acting never been better. I mean, that's not what I'm saying. But that sort of just the person who brings quiddity and charisma of themselves Mm -hmm. onto the screen and it goes straight to all parts of your brain. and, And, you know, it's like really... It's really, like, dangerously captivating. Uh, The other thing I would say is that, to me, it's also about the class politics of summer communities, where they evacuate, all the rich people evacuate, they seal them up, seal up their houses, and they're effectively gone for nine months of the year, leaving the infrastructure, like the social infrastructure of it, the people who service those communities and have to make their nut in those three months. I thought that was, it was not, like, portrayed in, like, you know, ethnographic detail, but it was real to me. And her class ambivalences and even hatreds play into her decision-making in the movie. And that gets at the heart, heart, heart of this movie to me, right? These are two very fucked up, very wounded people who have the power to annihilate 
Each has the power to annihilate the other, right? He has this power over here that's class and money power. And that really comes out later in the movie. And she has enormous power over his sexual self-esteem. And and they both flirt with abusing that power vis-a-vis the other because they're so wounded and vulnerable. And the movie's about how they don't do it. And to me, Dana, that's why it's in a weird disguised way kind of beautiful and affecting movie. I couldn't quite understand what I was feeling on the subway ride home. I was like, I, f- I feel funny inside. I was like, I, I, why do I feel yeah. so funny inside? And, and so your heart grew three sizes that day. I mean, you? did it? Something <laughs> happened. Was that what that was? Okay, I've got two quibbles I want to discuss before we adjourn, though. Quibble one. This movie is like the least sexy movie I've seen in 10 years. Like I wonder, you know, the the, the plot and the queasiness of the plot and the um, like it is good for the world that we are morally evolved enough that we, you know, that, that there's no indulging of the idea of like maybe these two crazy kids really will fall in love. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. the movie never indulges that this might be a real romance in the way that I, you know, the one movie I thought of was Can't Buy Me Love, where which like I, I have not rewatched, but the plot of it is like rich girl fucks up beautiful white suede fringed coat and rich nerd says he'll give her a thousand bucks if she makes him popular. And like, you know, there's just like so much fucked up sexual money exchange. I mean, whatever, pretty woman. Like there's just there's yeah. just weird <laughs> The movies of the 80s and 90s had a very strange relationship to deals like this. Indecent proposal logic, right? Yeah, Yeah. often would just like indulge an actual romantic or sexual fantasy around this kind of pairing or coupling that has some subterranean like fiscal lie underneath it. Mm. And this movie does not truck with that at all, which is appropriate for a movie made in 2023. But it is like the most sexless sex comedy, <laughs> like sex, sex jokes happen, but no sexiness happens, which maybe is fine. Like, I I don't think it would like the any thought of real sexiness between them would not have been made me like it more. But it's just an observation. So that's not really a quibble. That's just a, a note. My quibble slash question is this. I have never been more distracted by how bad her hair and makeup was. I've Mm. never been so distracted by terrible hair and makeup as I was in this film. Like her hair and makeup was not characterologically correct. Like she looked – it was neither consistent across scenes nor did the way it looked seem to match the moods or or vibes of each scene – nor did it seem in keeping with who her character was. I mean, it feels like they had the wrong hair and makeup person for the first half of the shoot, and then they fixed it, and it's just all over the place. But she looks like this Instagram 2016 Barbie mm. whose whose skin is kind of gold and with bronzer and highlighter and ringlets. Like, the way that she looks is a way that you can look as kind of like a, a girl in the world if – you have like insider points at Sephora and like watch a lot of YouTube tutorials and know how and like have hot rollers, you know, like her hair made no sense for her character. Am I crazy? Am I crazy? No, I, mean, I, I noticed this. First of all, wait till you hear me on Margot Robbie's hair and styling in Babylon. I have a tight 20 minutes on that. <laughs> I will say one very quick thing. Um, uh, I didn't find the movie unsexy because I 
for the first time in 30 years, like fell completely in love with the female lead. Like I just haven't done that since I was a very, very young man slash kid. And, and I, I, it had the sexiness of a movie in which the relationship doesn't consummate, like the Tokyo film from Sofia Coppola, uh, Lost in Translation, right? Like that that's its own form of of like of sexiness in a way. I mean, I, I, I really we admired this picture, the three of us. I'm shocked. Um, but I take courage from your judgments because I wasn't I wasn't sure. But now I am. All right. Check it out. No hard feelings. Not doing big business. And some of you, if you take our wreck and go see it are going to send us an angry email, but that's uh, that's part of the swim. All right, let's move on. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right. As I said up top, Jonah Weiner is a very good friend of this program. He's such a wonderful, wonderful writer. He has a substack called Blackbird Spy Plan. I'm embarrassed to say I didn't know about it until I think Dana or someone suggested we do this. He's written uh, an entry or whatever it's called on substack about Essence, S-S-E-N-S-E, which is a um, online clothing emporium aggregating lots of different brands, many of which are small and somewhat obscure and incredibly cool stuff at astonishingly low prices is what I take away from from Jonah's piece. But it may be like all such things, Julia, let me pivot to you, growing like a weed, attracting capital, becoming big. And there's some sense that it was a website, little website that could now trending in the direction of Amazon and it may distort everything. Where where do you begin with this story? What struck you about it? And where did it go for you? Well, first of all, I just want to say that Blackbird Spy Plane is really interesting if you like to think about wearing clothes and what it means to wear clothes and what we're doing when we wear clothes. Um, it is produced by Jonah Weiner and his partner, Erin. Um, she curates a semi-regular newsletter as part of it called Concord, which is more focused on women and women's fashion. And when they first started writing it, Joan in particular writes in this um, kind of arch fashion patois that he has invented for the purposes of the newsletter that is 
sort of unintelligible when you first encounter it. You're like, what? <laughs> I mean, it's it's very heightened. It's a little bewildering. It's a lot about like cop in Johns and unbeatable <laughs> intel and uh, like you have to kind of learn it. So the first couple months that I subscribed, I like didn't read it that often. It was sort of like, I don't know what this, pro- it sort of feels like an art project landing in your inbox. And then slowly over the last year or two, it has become one of those newsletters that just is bumping up my list of like, I absolutely read it when it comes to me. Mm. So within that, though, they have done um, this reporting project, which they're usually doing kind of style reporting, like here's cool stuff and here's cool people and here's cool things you could get and interesting ways to think about it. This is closer to an investigative report that is looking at the role that Essence plays in the e-commerce ecosystem. And the argument's really interesting. It's basically that... Essence is similar to any other big e-commerce app that you might use to buy fancy clothes, whether Net-A-Porter or Matches or they name several others, um, which are kind of like glossy curated Amazons for fancy clothes. I don't shop on Essence, but I have shopped on some of the other ones. And what's unique about Essence is that they will strike deals with very cool niche indie purveyors and feature their clothes as well as clothes from more mainstream fancy brands that are accustomed to producing big quantities for big e-commerce retailers. Where the problem seems to come in that they've articulated is that um, typically when a brand makes a deal with a retailer, there's rules about when you can put things on sale and for how much. And uh, there are sources in the story, most of them anonymous, who say, that styles that are forbidden from being on sale in the little boutiques that carry these tender, growing, little green shoot avant-garde fashion lines um, go on sale at Essence at times when the boutiques are not allowed to put them on sale and that the deals with Essence are too big for the little fashion companies to have any authority to say, hey, wait, you said you weren't going to put that on sale. (laughs) And so... The argument is essentially that Essence is screwing the little boutiques that help make the indie fashion ecosystem work by undercutting them on price, which they're technically not allowed to do, but they do anyway, and nobody seems to be able to do anything about it. And Jonah uh, did reach out to Essence for comment, and they sort of responded to say, nothing in particular about that. They said, we're an evolving business. We support our partners. We respect our confidentiality of our arrangements with them, which seemed like a way of saying, like, fuck anybody who talked to you and not really a way of rebutting uh, what was actually going on here. And then, um, you know, said they had no further comment on the story. So I think that's kind of what they're talking about. It's like, is this retailer a force for good in that it's – you know, boosting some of these indie businesses by giving them big deals and giving them visibility on this platform? Or is it bad for the indie fashion marketplace because it is undercutting the boutiques that that make such a marketplace sustainable? And if a small line ends up on this site for a couple seasons, it could sort of overexpand, you know, make 80 of something it might have only made 20 of before. And then if Essence drops it, 
you know, maybe the little boutiques don't carry it anymore because they're tired of getting undercut. So that so it was really fascinating to see this kind of business reporting in this context and, you know, really interesting. And I'm curious what you guys thought of of this reporting and this analysis. I mean, Julia, as a fellow reader of Blackbird's Biplane, like I've subscribed to it since the beginning. I don't think, to be honest, that there's any Substack newsletter that I read every time it lands in my inbox because there is just something somehow dispiriting about newsletters as a format, but that has nothing to do with this particular one. And mm-hmm. I've always felt like it was doing something special with fashion writing. And I really felt like I learned something about about fashion marketing that I hadn't thought about and that because I don't shop for clothes online that much or really honestly shop for clothes, period, I kind of decided at a certain point, okay, you've spent the first half of your life accumulating Johns. Now you got to start wearing your Johns. <laughs> so except, except for an occasional vintage run in person, I don't really shop. So to see the state of the fashion industry at this moment in the 21st century and at this moment in kind of, you know, digital marketing of everything was really fascinating and really depressing, honestly. I mean, somebody in this in this piece, I don't think it's Jonah himself. I think it's one of the people he interviews, describes what Essence does as luxury arbitrage. And I think that's a good way of, of getting at the heart of what is disturbing about their business model, right? And Steve, you could explain what arbitrage is better than I could, but basically it's the sort of mass acquisition of a whole lot of assets so you can play them off each other, right? And try to take advantage of price fluctuations. I don't know. Some economist is listening to this with their head in their hands. (laughs) That's not what arbitrage means, but... Well, that's what Essence is doing, and that was a a useful category for me to to help understand it. Or maybe Netflix or something like that. Some company like that is a better example, right? A company that just amasses a huge amount of content material under its roof, you know, and doesn't do any particular amount of work to help the producers of that content to get recognition, get marketing, right? I mean, everybody's talked about like, oh, I went on Netflix to find this small movie and you have to know the exact title of the movie and the exact spelling in order to find it because they're not going to give it any kind of boost. And Mm -hmm. it seems like Essence is sort of doing that to these small designer brands, which is, as Julia said, you know, essentially suppressing their ability to define themselves in the world. Mm -hmm. Arbing is when you take advantage of a price discrepancy between two separate markets, which they may be doing because they're, I mean, a version of it because they're buying in bulk and then selling, they're buying cheap and selling dear, but that's not exactly Arb. What they are is a monopsony or developing one, which is a monopoly version on the buying end. Uh, And they're uh, becoming the single buyer in the way that Amazon, in some sense, is the single buyer uh, for wholesale goods. And that's going to give them enormous pricing power. Um, This is like a really classic American story of the little cool thing that's on the margin. In this instance, it's this website's ability to find it. And I think Jonah, who clearly knows his way around fashion and the mar- all the way to the margins, all the way to the coolest, fringiest margins, seems to understand and know it, was able to find things on this site that really surprised him, really bowled him over. Um, and then as in the classic American business story, right? It's It's like... As it gathers steam, it draws attention and money to it. In this instance, Sequoia, here comes private equity. Like private equity is going to be the villain in every hyper-capitalist story in 2023. And it's the villain in here. And Jonah does a very good job of not calling them out. He doesn't ever get on a high horse. But the truth is, you know, big money, Sequoia is as big as it gets. Big private equity money is now flowing to it. And all of these little indie types, fashion types, 
many of whom were willing to talk on the record to Jonah, know what's happening. This is just the new Amazon gathering steam here. And as one of them says, it's going to kill the thing we all love, right? Like that's, it's the big that's going to kill the small and the unusual. And as they conclude, I might be begging them for a job someday. Yeah. I think I have a less apocalyptic view of it as I would as our official technophiliac um, in that Essence didn't invent this. Amazon didn't invent this. Like platforms that give you the ability to find a much bigger audience for your niche thing can help you as a business because they can drive your sales or they can destroy you because they can overwhelm you. I mean, essentially, this website is the equivalent of like the scene in the bear season one when the chits explode because they go they start the to go orders, right? It's like, suddenly you have to fire set 37 chickens, right? And so, you know, these businesses have some autonomy to make a decision about whether to be in business with an essence type place or a Sephora or whatever. But the thing I will speak for is the experience of the e-commerce shopper. I do use these sites. I actually don't really spend any time on essence, but I sp- I've spent time on matches. I've spent time on, on Net-A-Porter. The role that they play in my life for the last few years is like a replacement for the fashion magazine. Like it's just a really interesting place to see what's being made and see what the styles are and see which ones I might like. I find it entertaining even when I'm not buying stuff, like what's, huh, what's the cut of the jacket? Like, oh, wow, everybody's making those funky little teeny tiny skirts. Or, And so to the degree that Essence is being operated with a more ambitious curatorial eye and a willingness to take a bet on small players and put them in, like it sounds like I should have been looking at Essence instead of Matches or Net-A-Porter and I would have found more interesting stuff there, you know? And I do... So I liked I liked that the reporting was pointing out some of the upsides of essence as well. And I don't know, like, I think probably ecologically, like the challenge of our time is all of these digital businesses have given us the illusion of infinite access to everything, right? Infinite access to all movies ever, ever made. Oh, wait, psych, they're not actually going to carry them anymore. Oh, whoops, wait, we stopped making physical media. Like, ugh, we don't have that anymore. Um, you know, Uber, and Uber will infinitely take you everywhere for practically next to free. Oh, psych, guess what? No, it costs money now. <laughs> now that's not less of a feasible option because it's not being subsidized by venture capital. And But we didn't build bike infrastructure while we were doing that. You know, like the... The, the thing it highlights is the potential costs of the illusion of the venture-funded business model. Um, and, and you know, I don't think an ecosystem where the only way to learn about very cool clothing brands is to have the time and money to go to very cool boutiques across a panoply of international cities is necessarily better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. Or there are ways in which it's better. It's ecologically better. It's probably less consumptive. But... There's also a useful role that this app is playing in in surfacing this stuff to a broader, more democratic group of people. So I appreciated the complexity of the report and, um, yeah, just just thought it was a really thorny little problem that they did a great job illuminating. All right. Fair enough. Um, and I, I don't disagree at all. It, it, his, he's just so good at balancing those. You're right. Jonah Weiner's just terrific. Blackbird spy plane is kind of amazing. I only just discovered it. We'll link to this uh, post or whatever in particular on our website. Love to hear what you think. Let's move on. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. 
On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find life and art from FD Weekend wherever you listen. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What, uh, what do you have? I'm going to do something unusual this week, and I'm going to endorse a job description, <laughs> basically a job opportunity that I wish I could find the right person for. So this is me using this platform in the hopes that among all the bookish listeners we have, somebody will be suited to this one-year part-time job. And the job is to be an access and engagement curator at the Bronte Parsonage Museum in uh. Haworth, Yorkshire, <laughs> which is the home, of course, of the Bronte sisters and brother. Uh and is now a museum dedicated to their life, which I've always wanted to visit. I didn't manage to do it when I was in England earlier this year, but I'll go there one day. Anyway, I follow them on Twitter, and it so happens that they are now looking for somebody to be their access and engagement curator. This is a very particular job because you would have it would only really be worth doing if you already lived in West Yorkshire, basically. It doesn't pay enough to move to West Yorkshire. It's only one year. It's only part-time. So this is great for maybe a student, somebody who's starting out in museum curation, uh, somebody who's interested in literature and wants to explore that. It doesn't seem like you need to have any particular degree in museum science to do this, and it doesn't pay super highly, but it does give you time to have a different job. Anyway, I just feel like some somebody out there is exactly the person for this dream job, and it just sounds so wonderful what an access and engagement curator does is essentially help to put together their exhibits of furniture, clothing, manuscripts, all the things of the Brontes that they have, and try to get people to come in. And Haworth, of course, is in the middle of nowhere, basically, right? It's in a remote part of the Yorkshire Moors. And so they're probably having trouble finding just the right person, but maybe somebody listening to this show wants to do this job. So we'll put a link to it on our show page. And if it interests you at all, you got to apply soon because I believe July 2nd, this coming Sunday, is their deadline for applications. Oh, that is awesome. Julia, what do you have? All right. I'm going to endorse the Instagram feed of a Parisian patisserie named Cedric Grolet. Do you guys follow him? I've heard of him. Is he is he a Paris-based guy? I think so. Honestly, I'm just assuming that from context clues because he looks so fucking French and the pastries he's making seem extremely French and his name is Cedric Grolet. <laughs> but um, and he seems to like uh, well, in each video, there are these really beautifully shot and made videos um, in a very expensive seeming baking atelier and he demonstrates in these nicely edited little clips how to make these incredibly glossy elaborate fruity complex french patisserie of various kinds and he does it at huge scale that's part part, part of what's interesting is that it's like watching great british bake off except the result is perfect instead of the like travails of the person who's like custard curdles. His custard never curdles. Everything is always perfect. And then he also is is baking at scale. So he's using these huge beaters and these huge quantities and, and he sort of shows you um, ha- how to do it. They're just gorgeous. And then at the end of each one, he sort of takes them out and shares a little taste with like a huge throng on the sidewalk. And it, it, I would not say that these videos have made me desire to go to this bakery if I ever get to Paris or whatever other cities he's in, if my assumption is incorrect. (laughs) Um, But uh, I'm pretty sure they're Paris. But it it looks like a shit show outside. It looks like the worst kind of like tourist trap, basically. (laughs) But 
They're very fun to watch. And I've been watching them with my son who loves to bake. So recommend, if you're at all interested in baking, to give Cedric Grolet a follow. Okay, so I am endorsing, so many of our listeners, and I'm sure you guys are familiar with the um, English philosopher Amya Srinivasan, who wrote uh, The Right to Sex, which broke her really big a few years ago, feminist and uh, Oxford professor. And, you know, The Right to Sex is like opens with this tour de force about sexual assault, and it's just brilliantly explored and um, argued. And um, I don't agree with the bulk of the argument of the book, but she's just an extraordinary public philosopher and thinker and rigorously, rigorously trained. Um, And she has a piece in the new, I think it's the latest London Review of Books about academic freedom that I just thought was brilliant and precise. And it runs to, I believe, close to 9,000 words. And it's this, I thought somewhat definitive attempt to really understand how the notion of academic freedom is being abused by the right in England, uh, especially because that's very close to home uh, and America as well. Um, And how like a really cunning form of demagoguery is built around uh, what she says, and I'll quote now, this conflation now commonplace of free speech and academic freedom. And so an absolutist interpretation of free speech and in America, the First Amendment is wielded against the right for academic departments, disciplines, universities to police who gets to speak, right? And her whole point is the entire enterprise of the university would be socially valueless if there wasn't a degree of disciplinary autonomy in which some people, as a consequence of scholarship, expertise, the ability to reason, I mean, just really fundamental ability to engage with others in the serious pursuit of of truth, right? That failing the ability to internally enforce that within this community, this specific community, would render the university a complete joke. And the right knows that. So what they're in fact doing is very cynically wielding, you know, a piety that most of us feel for some quasi-absolute notion of free speech in order to actually undermine academic freedom while saying they're the ones who truly believe in academic freedom. And this is a good example of how, and I hope this isn't overly broad or overly gendered, but I do think there's a way in which philosophy was stale and needed to be renewed by something. And you're like, what would it ever be? We've like thought through everything. But of course, we was white men, right? And it's the truth is philosophy has moved away from the monopoly of, of white males. And I would say women and, and uh, women of color, as she is working with philosophy and the absolute rigor of that form of argumentation uh, and the training and discipline that goes into it um, in order to make points like this. And, um, and so I'm grateful to interact with it, but I thought this was an especially brilliant piece. It's called Cancelled. Uh, Amya Srinivasan writes about free speech on campus. It is, in fact, 10,000 words. It's on the London Review of Books. It's we'll linked to it. It's very worth your time. Dana, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. It was fun to have you. Yeah, really fun. I mean, to be back in the room with you, that is. <laughs> thank you, Julia. That was a really fun episode. 
Thank you, guys. Uh, you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by Nicholas Bertel. Our production assistant is Kat Hong. Our uh, producer is Cameron Drews. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.